Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us today on our discussion about the Credit Managers Index. One of the things that we try to do on Manufacturing Talk Radio is to bring in the uh, thought leaders and knowledge experts on various areas that affect manufacturing, and certainly credit is a very big area. And whether you're in supply chain or operations or sitting in the C-suite or in the credit manager's office, it's worthwhile looking at the Credit Managers Index report that is put out each month by the National Association of Credit Managers. And we thank them for allowing us to share this information both on our radio show and in our monthly magazine called Metals and Manufacturing Outlook. They can be found at www.nacm.org. Again, that's the National Association of Credit Managers. And Dr. Chris Keel writes their Credit Managers Index report for them. He's with Armada Corporate Intelligence. He was found by us through our friends at the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International, a great group that talks about fabricated metals and materials. So, Chris, welcome again to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Well, you're so welcome. And and if you're sitting in the office of a credit manager, that means that you're in the basement, there's no windows, and 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 the, the furniture is probably at least thirty years old. But you know, so <laughs> and and there's a rack in the corner and chains and cuffs on the wall exactly, to make you pay. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> they want you know, their that, money. That, yeah, next next door is Guido's office, and he just keeps muttering <laughs> things about cement overshoes and you know, kneecaps and things like that. So. <laughs> right. But this month, the Credit Manager's Index Report looks fairly good, Chris. It does. I mean, a bit of a contrast with the PMI. Uh, the PMI, as you've already discussed, was a little down. <laughs> Again, it's it's all kind of relative. I mean, it's it's changing from month to month, and so is the CMI. What we saw this month was a little bit of a kind of a settling of the what we call favorable factors they are still very good many of them are still in the 60s and high 50s not quite as high as they were a month or so ago but the real improvement was found in what we call the unfavorable factors and these are things like accounts out for collection and disputes and slow pays and bankruptcies all the really joyful things that credit managers get to deal with those got a little better. Some of them are still in the contraction territory below 50, but more of them began to at least eke across the border and, and start in the con, into expansion territory. Not by much, not enough to make anybody relax, but a little less threatening than it may have been a month or so ago. Do credit managers ever relax, Chris? No, it's not allowed. It's in the you know, there are certain things that come with certain professions. Economists are never allowed to smile. Um, we're not allowed to wear anything but black in public. And credit managers are forever muttering under their breath, it's not a sale until we're paid. Um, so it's <laughs> a, you know, we, we're kind of made for each other. Economists and credit managers just, you know, we kind of go ahead of the crowd with the bells gloom doom despair I mean, that's kind of our, <laughs> right. our our you know 
that's our charge. Now, I, I know that credit managers look through their crystal ball 90 to 180 days down the road when orders have been produced and they're now on trucks, they've been shipped, and so now somebody has to pay for them. What does it look right. like towards the end of the year? Yeah, there's a certain amount of, I wouldn't call it trepidation, but maybe nervousness, and it's shared across a lot of different surveys and, and analysis pieces these days. When I was writing up this month's CMI, I was kind of pointing out that this was the same kind of, of hesitation or caution that you're seeing in durable goods orders, in capacity utilization, in industrial production, productivity. People are in a pretty good mood as it comes to the day-to-day, but when they look down the road, they get worried. They understand that the impact of the trade and tariff situation could recur. Um, There was an expectation that some kind of a quasi-deal would be worked out with the Chinese, and it was, but it was only a deal to keep talking, and there's no real indication that either the U.S. or China is willing to back off of any of its positions. And so the whole thing could come back in a month or two months or three months, and and it makes people uneasy. There's the sense that we temporarily have an agreement with Mexico, but again, it's contingent. You know, we want the Mexicans to be more engaged with the immigration issue. They have promised to do so, but the promises are a little bit vague. It's not really clear what would be compliance, what isn't. So that whole issue could come back up. Um, There's worry about international growth. Um, Europe is not growing very fast. China is slowing down. Japan isn't growing very fast. All of these things just kind of weigh on the credit manager because they're saying, well, yeah, things are good today, but I don't care about today. I care about 30, 60, 90, 120, 180 days from now when I am owed money. And is the company that I'm working with going to be in a position to pay me in two, three, four months? Um, It's not altogether clear. And, of course, it all gets muddied up by the oncoming election. Um, No one quite knows what goes on because it's going to change with the the whims of the candidates. I mean, right now, both parties are, are playing to their base, and the rest of the country is kind of looking at them going, Hello, how about the rest of us? <laughs> Do we count? It's like it's like no, no, you you are not the kind of partisan person that shows up at the primary, so we don't care about you yes. right now. Right. But once the primaries are over, oh, then you fascinate us, <laughs> and we try to get you on our side. So, <laughs> so true. Risk, what's the consumer doing? Are they kind of tra-la, lying forward in life and not saving and things are good and, you know, the restaurants are crowded? and Or are they uh, more attuned to this uh, kind of uh, turbid water? You know, they're a little bit cautious. You're not seeing quite the excitement over the summer vacation that you might have in the past. Spending is a little bit down. Um, Spending on the entertainment sector is a little bit down, but not a lot. I mean, people are still taking advantage of relatively low gas prices, so they're traveling. Airfares have not gone up dramatically. 
if you're seeing any trepidation with the consumer at all right now, it is probably maybe around their own credit. But even even that, I mean, most consumers now are accessing their credit more aggressively than they used to. The total debt owed by the population has been growing again. All of that frugality that we were demonstrating right after the recession, oh, that's gone. Um, we're all kind of <laughs> like, oh, heck, you know. It's it's the philosophy of I can't be broke I still have checks, um, so it's right. it's one of those things where we're kind of going back to old habits. Um, there was concern being expressed around potential price hikes when it came to imports, but they really haven't manifested yet. Um, if you look at the latest trade data, you know our deficit grew dramatically last month. And it grew because consumers were out purchasing. And even with all the tariffs and the trade wars, it's really difficult to keep a consumer in the U.S. from buying imports. You know, there's an awful lot of, of material that comes in from an awful lot of countries. We are not buying as much from China as we used to, but we're still importing it. Um, whatever market share China lost, Vietnam has picked up, or Brazil, or Mexico, or Sri Lanka, or Bangladesh, you know, any country that can compete with the Chinese, they're like, well, Americans still want cheap t-shirts, and they still want cheap shoes, and they still want cheap everything, so we're going to buy it from wherever we can. Understood, understood. On a, on a very uh, off-the-beaten-path kind of, uh, topic, Chris, but you always seem to be on top of a lot of these issues. We're hearing talk out of the political spectrum that there's an idea that we should forgive and waive one point some trillion dollars of student debt. If that were right. actually done, does it have an impact yeah. on the economy? Yeah, it would. It's going to have. It's probably one of those one step forward, two step backs situation because. On the one hand, the initial response would be that if you found a way to wipe out all of that student debt in one swell swoop, um, some kind of an edict from on high, all those people who are currently being burdened by student debt would have that removed. Now, what the presumption would be that this would be a freeing thing, and they would suddenly start buying houses and starting families and buying cabin cruisers and all that stuff, <laughs> maybe. Um, but, you know, it would certainly help their budget. The two steps back, though, one, the most obvious, is that that money is, is going to have to come from somewhere. Uh, it is currently being held on the federal government's books as as, you know, something that is owed them. And if you suddenly remove it, then it makes our debt that much worse, um, and it's already a pretty monstrous debt. The other problem is is more perhaps psychological. Um, you are probably the most most devastated group will be the ones who have paid back their loans and have done all the things they were supposed to do are going to sit back and say, really. Really, all I have to do is refuse to pay my debt, and I can walk away from it at some point. Awesome. I think I'll try that with my taxes. Um, I think I'll try that with other things I'm owed. And it really is disillusioning to people who play by the rules. Um, 
And then you've got the problem of, in a sense, the kind of rewarding very bad decisions. The majority of those who are suffering from debt that they cannot pay have They've gone to schools that didn't have a very good reputation. They majored in things that didn't give them pretty good jobs. Um, the vast majority of those who have paid off their loans, well, they majored in the non-fun things like accounting and business and went into the professions. And, you know, they still have a debt burden, but at least they've got an income and can pay it off. Too many of those that are really struggling with debts, well, you know, they got that degree in underwater basket weaving, and they don't know what to do with it now. <laughs> so. Right, right. Chris, one of the things that I had heard as we uh, just looked at the credit ratings of countries in general was that when your national debt approached 70 or 75 percent of your GDP, your credit began to tail off, uh, moving right. from AAA to not as good. Um, and some countries have suffered that. Ours is now about equivalent in climbing against our GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, yet the credit reporting agencies aren't quick to dump us down to junk bond status. What's really going on? Yeah, part of the issue is that the U.S. is in a very unique position. Every other country in the world, when it is in a balance of payments crisis situation where it needs to address its debt, it can only do that by using what it's referred to as its hard currency reserves. So it's going to have to use the dollar or, in some cases, the euro, in some cases, the yen, to get that budget back in balance. For every other country in the world, it means they have to earn somehow that hard currency. They're going to have to make money from their exports. They're going to have to raise revenue. The only country that can deal with its balance of payments issue by simply printing more money is us because the current currency is the dollar. So we're in a very unique position. We never really come up against the barrier that every other country does. On the other hand, we end up accumulating a higher and higher deficit as far as the federal budget is concerned because the way that we print money is we sell bonds, and the bonds are obligations. So the bondholders, whether they're domestic or international, have an an asset, and they basically are accounted against the U.S., we have to service that debt. And every year, the federal budget is going to be comprised of between $300 and $400 billion worth of debt service. So that's what really hurts the U.S. economy. It's not that we're never going to be able to, you know, salvage our debt rating. It'll always be high. We're always in a position to pay whatever we want to pay. But it costs us. It's, it's the way I talk about it when I give talks is like being fabulously wealthy, but you run your credit cards up anyway. It's like <laughs> you can pay them off, but you don't because you somehow love paying Visa and MasterCard, you know, 20% on those maxed out cards. You look at somebody saying, why would you do that? Pay off the stupid card. And and that's kind of where we are as a country. It's kind of like, well, you know, we could reduce spending and raise a bit of revenue, but no, we're going to borrow instead so that we can add debt to our debt. <laughs> it's like, oh, why? Wow. Um, yeah. 
Now, I know there's also been some discussion uh, offhandedly. I occasionally pick it up in the news about the gold standard and the dollar being returned to the gold standard. Is that something that looks like it's real? You know, it really is not. Um, You now have an individual that has been suggested as a member of the Fed's Board of Governors who is a gold standard advocate, uh, Judy Shelton. The gold standard was something we went off in the 1970s, and it was simply because there really wasn't enough gold in the world to support the currency that was in circulation then. There certainly is not now. And <laughs> what ends up happening is when you when you end up tying to something like gold or silver or whatever it is, it puts a very severe limitation on what countries can do with their currencies. If we were to go on the gold standard tomorrow, if we think we have a budget crisis now, that would be epic because we would suddenly have to finance our debt. And given the fact that our debt's about 100% of our $20 trillion GDP, I leave to the listeners the concept of where do you come up with $20 trillion? It means massive tax increases and massive budget cuts. So it's one of those wonderful things where your taxes will quadruple and government will do (laughs) absolutely nothing for you. So (laughs) it's like you will have no Medicare, no Social Security, no Medicaid, no highways, no roads, no military. You know, it's but your taxes will go way up. And it's like, oh, oh, yeah. that doesn't sound very good. Uh, <laughs> no yeah, it's not practical. You know, it it would make sense to be more attuned to deficit. There are countries that really don't want to go into deficit spending and work very hard not to. Australia is a good example of that. We have been off profligate In Europe, for example, if you go over 3% on your budget deficit, they fine you. I mean, the European Union fines countries that exceed that. 3% is absolutely max. The U.S. right now is running a deficit of 4.8. So if we were in Europe, the Germans would have taken us over right now, saying, you owe us money because you cannot be trusted with your own budget. <laughs> <laughs> One of the conversations that always comes up on the news is headwinds, and certainly that's always a concern, but it's kind of this nebulous thing. Can you give us some context of headwinds and what may be in the wind coming up for 2019? Yeah, it's one of those those wonderful little journalistic terms that doesn't mean a whole lot. Right. It, it, it basically is, is a collective description of anything that would stall the economy or create problems for the economy. And it can, it can be both extremes of the same issue. You know, inflation is sometimes seen as a headwind because prices go up and people are reluctant to spend because prices are going up and some people are more affected, particularly if their income is not flexible. But at the same token, you may have somebody talking about the headwind of, of slow growth which is the opposite of inflation and is basically creating consternation about lack of jobs and, you know, that sort of stuff. Lack of productivity is a headwind. The housing market not moving at a rapid clip is a headwind. So it's really anything that is 
inhibiting some sector of the economy. I mean, to tell the truth, the biggest headwind right now is the uncertainty over trade and tariffs. I don't think anyone argues that we don't have to reorganize global trade. It has been kind of clanking for a long time. The techniques that are being used right now are a little bit ham-fisted, um, probably unrealistic, as we've seen, because we, we can't seem to make any of these things stick. You know, we're going to do this tariff, we're going to do that tariff, and at the last minute we change our minds, which just kind of leaves the business community confused. You know, they don't know quite what to make of this. Um, as you and I and Lou have talked about for over a year, the steel and aluminum tariffs, the idea right. was that this would limit the amount of import competition, domestic steel makers would produce more steel, get into areas they weren't in now because they weren't facing that competition. Well, every time an exemption was made, and exemptions were made for Brazil, for South Korea, you know, Canada and Mexico are going to get exemptions, the domestic steel makers were saying, oh, that's the number one, two, three, and four importers. Who are you protecting <laughs> right. us from? You know, you really think we're going to invest when every 20 minutes you lift the tariff that you put on three months ago? No, we're not going to do any of that. So it, it, it keeps everybody off balance. Meanwhile, the manufacturer is saying, well, I'm, I'm seeing a limit in imports, and the domestic producers aren't producing anymore. Hmm, my prices went up 30 to 40%. What the heck did we do to deserve this? <laughs> so, right, right. Well, that's and as you point out, we've watched cold rolled steel, which is a pretty good indicator of uh, the tonnage price of steel, go from six seventy in January of twenty eighteen to peaking at nine fifty after the tariffs went mm -hmm. in place to today being like five twenty. Uh, right. It's it's astonishing that the tariffs don't seem to be doing the U.S. steelmakers much good. No, it really hasn't. And, and it comes down to, again, the fact that usually, historically, our tariff policies have been highly political. You know, they're sort of there for leverage internationally, whether used for some sort of domestic purposes. You know, the only tariffs that really work are ones that are semi-permanent like the Europeans and the common agriculture policy. The Europeans know their farms can never compete with the U.S. or Canada or Brazil. And so they just simply flat out state, we are going to block your food forever. We know it would be cheaper to buy from you. We don't care. We are not going to destroy the rural communities of Europe to get cheap corn, wheat, and rice. So don't even try it's been in place since the 1950s. It'll be in place until the year 3050. That way, <laughs> everybody knows what it is. It's like, okay, don't even try. Don't even try to sell to the Europeans. It's not going to work. Ours tend to be, well, they're on, they're off, they're on, they're off. No one quite knows how to plan. And and it's the biggest challenge whenever I talk to businesses. It says we can cope with almost anything except uncertainty. If we don't know right. what's coming, if we don't understand what the regulatory threat is, or if we don't understand the tax threat, we can't cope. But if we know that it's coming, even if we don't like it, we can at least say, okay, I know this is coming. I'll develop a strategy. 
Chris, I know that uh, Europe is slowing. China, well, we think it's slowing. We don't know if their PMI numbers are accurate or fuzzy. Uh, Japan is down. Uh, we're the economy that seems to be doing okay. Is Europe likely to pick up anytime soon? Are they due for a turnaround? They might be. It kind of depends on, on getting past some of their headwinds. I mean, one of the challenges that Europe has had for probably the last year, back to this uncertainty thing, their leadership. They've not really known who's going to head up the European Central Bank, the European Commission, the European Parliament. All of these positions were open, and there's been nothing but wrangling over the last several months as to who is going to be in those posts. As of today, two of the key posts have been essentially filled. Now, these people still have to be approved. One of them is a shoe-in. The other maybe not so much. But that begins to settle people a bit. Um, the next shoe to drop is Brexit. Um, they need to figure out what that's going to look like. And they have to wait until the British elections, or at least the elections within the Tory party. And then once that's settled, Europe can kind of, of get down to brass tacks. I think it's probably a good thing that somehow they managed to lure Christine Lagarde away from the IMF to be the head of the European Central Bank. She will be an extension of the current Central Bank leader, Mario Draghi. There was conversation about the German central banker coming in, Jens Wiedemann, but he would have been taking the bank in a very different direction, which was making everybody very nervous. And now all of a sudden, Wiedemann is out, Lagar is in, and everyone's heaving a sigh of relief, which you could tell because the bond market instantly reacted. <laughs> so, <laughs> And this looming issue of Brexit, uh, yep. Theresa May could not get it resolved. I don't know if uh, Boris is going to do any better. Yeah, and it depends on, on what happens with that group, too, because at first it looked like Johnson was a shoe-in, but he's gotten a very serious competition from Jeremy Hunt, who is positioning himself as the serious intelligent candidate and at first he didn't have a lot of, of support but that's been gaining every week if you were a betting man in Britain right now it's beginning to shift more towards Hunt and more towards the Tories going we don't need the drama of Boris Johnson you know we don't need the sort of, of crisis atmosphere that will come with him Hunt is not anti-Brexit. He's not really pro-Brexit. He's kind of in the middle. He's also the former foreign minister. So if anyone's going to work with the Europeans, it would probably be him. And so now the world is sort of like secretly hoping, go, Jeremy, go, Jeremy. Let's not get weird Boris in this art <laughs> nemesis. So. Right, right. Now, if Jeremy Hunt were to get in, is he going to deal with a situation in parliament where he like us have this far left group that is unsettling things making wild statements promises that no one can ever fulfill and nothing gets done for another couple of years well it's possible the one advantage that the british have with their parliamentary system is that he really doesn't have to deal with the labor left because they don't have enough votes to control parliament. As long as the conservative party has the majority of the parliamentary members, Jeremy Hunt is automatically the prime minister. 
So he really only has to deal with his own party, and his strange wing is the aggressive, you know, let's leave Europe no matter what. So he needs to hold off those who are willing to kind of fall on their own sword and say, we'll do anything to get away from Europe. And it's like, including collapsing your economy into the worst recession since the 1930s? Yes, absolutely. And the other members are like, <laughs> you morons, um, you know, can't we just detach from Europe without starting World War III and, and see if we can salvage a little bit of the British economy? Britain is trying to move away from being dependent on Europe, but that's going to take time. And, you know, they shouldn't be in a position where they have to abandon their largest market all at once. Um, so that's kind of the message that Hunt is saying. He said, we're going to do Brexit. Just let's try not to commit suicide in the process. <laughs> so. Right. And and then we've got the U.S. And there are so many uncertainties in this country. I know the manufacturing sector is uh, starting to play their cards closer to the vest. Uh, I mm -hmm. think the service sector, we may see that happening soon. What does it look like uh, going into 2019, into 2020? Uh, I think I'm going to sense a slowdown and very cautious forward movement. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's it's not an all five alarm fire situation, but it's a feeling that yeah, consumers might start getting a little tired. We're a little bit worried about our exports. I mean, this trade deficit that we got numbers on last for this last month showed a lot of imports and not a lot of exports. And exports are still 15% of our GDP. We can't really do any better when it comes to exports if other countries aren't growing, uh, particularly the ones that we sell to. So I have a suspicion that, that people are beginning to internalize. I mean, even some of the ongoing problems, even if business wanted to expand, they are still struggling with labor shortage. And right. so the companies I talk to are saying, look, you know, right now, Hiring to expand doesn't really mean what it used to. It means that we're going to hire a bunch of semi-qualified people who we're going to spend the next two to three years training. We don't really have any reason to do that. So we would rather turn business down right now than staff up with people who aren't qualified. Because one of the things that's been happening with productivity is that when you hire people who aren't really qualified, even if they're willing and they want to learn, you're going to be taking your experienced people, and 25, 30, 40 percent of their time is now going to be spent training these other people. And you can't look at them and say, well, I want you to keep up your same level of productivity while you train Skippy here. <laughs> and it's like, right. no, if you want me to train Skippy, my productivity is going to drop by half. So deal with that. If you want productivity right. to stay up, leave me alone and quit hiring people whose latest job was pulling Slurpees at Quick Trip. You know, start hiring <laughs> people who are ready to work. Yeah, it's a tough position to be in. You've got a great economy, but not much room, I don't think, to expand it much more just no. for that issue. No, you don't. Well, and and where we've traditionally got additional workers has been through immigration, and that right now is not a particularly popular subject. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
I don't know how that one gets resolved anytime soon. Uh, that's a, a uh, yeah. war of the world. Yeah, I think the solution ultimately is that, you know, we took a lot of territory from Mexico once upon a time. You know, they had California and Texas. Let's just take the rest of it and call it the 51st state. Then they won't be immigrants <laughs> anymore. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can take Honduras, El Salvador, San Salvador, we'll just expand yeah, exactly. the U.S. You know, but, I mean, but even if we just stop with Mexico, you know, then all of a sudden it's like, you know, we'll never have to worry about where our avocados come from. We'll never have to worry about where tequila comes from. We're set. So. Yeah, that's right. Well, Chris, is there a way to sum up all of this mess? What I've been telling people in, in the talks that I've been doing for the last several months is because the question of are we heading for a recession, blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, I don't think we're heading for a recession. What I think we are heading for is a return to mediocrity. We are not going to see those those nice 3%, 3.5% growth quarters for a while. But we're not going to see sub 2% either. I think we're going to be in that traditional range 2 to 2.5 it's it's survivable um it's the kind of growth that kind of punishes bad decisions um so companies get more cautious they they don't have the extra wherewithal to be all that risky and that just makes them more more attuned to the day-to-day and that's not an altogether bad place to be it's just a more careful place No doubt, and I would agree with you. It will be interesting to see how it works itself out. Chris, thank you again for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio to to present the Credit Managers Index. Again, express our thanks to the National Association of Credit Managers, and we're always grateful to the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International where we first met you so that you can continue to participate with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks very much. We'll talk again next month. All right, Chris, thanks. Look forward to it. And we've been speaking with All Dr. Right. Chris Keel, who is with Armada Corporate Intelligence. And he also is the chief economist for a number of other organizations and always has such a wide range of information and views on what's happening in the global economy that we are thrilled to have him on Manufacturing Talk Radio. And he will join us again next month. You can find this and all the other episodes at mfgtalkradio.com. And thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.